comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For one man he made every, from one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of, each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Somewhere in the uh, 18th or 19th century, our family left Israel, and uh, we sailed from Israel in a uh, Greek boat named the USS Olympia, and uh, came to Athens, to the port um, section of Athens, which is called Piraeus, and uh, we were able to spend a couple of days with fellow believers um, who met us and uh, put us up, and part of the experience was seeing um, on the highest hill in Athens um, an area called the Acropolis, which used to be a, um, a fortress and that still has a, um, a temple to the goddess Athene, the goddess of wisdom. Um, this temple is called the Parthenon. Pretty incredible stuff. Uh, there is a, a statue, uh, at least there was a statue of Athene made of uh, gold and ivory. And um, the picture that, that we saw is obviously different uh, than what Paul saw because uh, Athens has a lot of churches. But um, as Tracy read to us, we see a, a picture that's often talked about um, and not always in very positive terms. Let me just back up and give you a little bit of background here. Um, Paul had been ministering in Macedonia, and it was tough sledding. He ministered in a couple of the major cities called, uh, one called Thessalonica, and another one called Berea. And um, there was some positive response. People liked what he said. They listened, and uh, several of them accepted Yeshua, and a congregation was uh, established there, but there was a great deal of opposition. In fact, there was a, uh, a religious riot uh, in Thessalonica, and so much so that Paul and his companions um, were, were thrown in, in the clapper, and um, they had to be they had to skedaddle. They had to run away from um, Thessalonica and come to Berea. Berea, they found a similar kind of situation. <clears throat> a 
people were receptive, but then the folks, the Jewish opponents, uh, by the way, not everybody in, in those cities who was Jewish was uh, in opposition, but there were some <clears throat> who were hot against Paul, and when they found out that he was in Berea, they came, they chased him out of Berea, <clears throat> and um, he had to mount, he, he had to get on the boat and um, come to Athens. Athens apparently was just a, a way station for him. Um, you know, we often think about Athens as the great cradle of civilization, uh, Greek civilization, because you had Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle, and ostensibly democracy began uh, in Athens. Um, from our perspective, I'm not sure there was such a grand uh, gift from the Greeks. But um, in any event, Athens at this point was a small city, about 10,000 or so. Um, but it was a bit like a uh, chihuahua. And you might say, how was Athens like a chihuahua? Well, um, it had an attitude. It was small and had a pretty significant attitude based on their past glory and the fact that the Roman government, uh, instead of having a uh, Roman uh, governor in, in, in Athens, they declared Athens to be free, a free city that was able to control it, its own destiny. And so even though Athens at this point uh, was somewhat poor, it still had a pretty significant attitude, and it was a place of great spiritual darkness. And from what we see in this picture, from what we know in history, when Paul came from the port of Piraeus uh, into Athens proper, he would look, the first object he would see would be the Parthenon, which was placed on this high hill. Um, and that would be a first indicator that this is a, an idol-worshiping town. And then as he came into the town proper, into the marketplace called the Agora, uh, the place was just overflowing with idols, with statues. Um, that's something, by the way, that, that Luke, who, who is the recorder of this, notes. Um, it was like a jungle of idols. Um, everywhere you went, there were statues, and particularly in this Agora, uh, and even elsewhere in the city, you had these square pillars, and on top of these pillars was the uh, image of Hermes, who was the, uh, among others, who was the messenger for the gods. And um, there were lots of these guarding the houses of the people, but there were also, in, in the marketplace itself, there was one section that was actually called Herms, which meant that's where you go to find statues of, of Hermes. Uh, then besides that, you had an altar to Zeus, you had an altar to Hephaestus, who was the god of fire and the patron of the metallurgy kind of folks. Uh, you had all kinds of statues and altars to um, emperors, including a statue to Claudius that stated something along the lines of uh, to the wonderful savior. Um, and so as Paul is seeing this, Luke explains that what he sees is deeply distressing. And the Greek word there is somewhat, uh, has a couple of nuances. It means both then he's angry, um, righteous anger, just like the Lord. He's reflecting God's anger at, at idols. And if you see the passages in the prophets that address idol worship, you see that the heart of God is filled with anger that people would forsake him and take up with these idols. But there's also a, a tinge of sadness in Paul's reaction because he looks at these people and recognizes the fact that they are spiritually blind. And he's very distressed. 
Now, I don't know about you. If I came to a place like the Agora and I saw statues everywhere uh, of Hermes and Zeus and so on and so forth, my inclination it would be to want to get out of there. Especially as Paul is coming to Athens after having been chased from pillar to post, persecuted, and you kind of get the impression that this is a way station. I would want to take a breather and say, you know, I'm going to find a nice shady spot. I'm going to put my cowboy hat and uh, just take a little nap. And that's really not what you find Paul is doing. He swings into action because he sees that these people are spiritually needy. He launches into doing what he's been called to do, and that is sharing the good news of Yeshua. Now, where's the first place he goes to? Synagogue, of course. And some, some commentators, some Christian commentators say, well, this is a very strategic. Paul knew, you know, as he comes to a place that he has to plan things out and he has to strategize, where am I going to go, what am I going to do, and so on and so forth. Um, it almost gives you the impression that he is doing some kind of strategic planning. And at least from what you see here, uh, Paul is reacting based on deep, deep, deep emotions. He is just moved, angry and, and, and sad. He feels like these people need to hear about Yeshua. <clears throat> he goes to the synagogue. Um, Athens apparently had enough Jewish people to have a synagogue uh, where he would find both Jews and also God-fearing Gentiles who would hang around and, and be part of the community, the synagogue. <clears throat> we don't know exactly what he said, what he did, but probably similar to what he's done in other synagogues. You know, he would be called up, he would, <coughs> excuse me, be given the Torah or the Haftorah, the prophets, and he would read from it and, and share from the Torah and from the prophets who Yeshua is. Also possible that Paul would come and speak to individuals and just kind of share about who he is and what he's doing and so on and so forth. Um, we don't know exactly what happened. It's possible that one of the people that came to follow him and follow Yeshua, the Maris, might have come from there. We don't really know for sure. But he goes from there to the shopping mall their version of the shopping mall. Uh, where would you go? And by the way, we forget the fact that Paul was a businessman. Did you know that? Paul was a businessman. Yes, he was an evangelist. He created, he began congregations of one kind or another. But a major part of his, during his mi missionary, his ministry tours, uh, was spent making a living by making tents, and where would you go? You'd go to the Agora, you'd go to the marketplace in order to sell your tents. So this was not a new, a strange place for him either. And he does what he normally does. He talks to people about Yeshua. And by the way, uh, what you find Paul doing is something that has to happen to each of us to one extent or another. If we know Yeshua as our Messiah, if we have a relationship with God, this kind of a pattern has to come and be part of our life as well. Uh, not that we stand up necessarily in, in the synagogue, but when you think about it, what does the synagogue represent? The synagogue represents a comfort place for Paul. Now think about places and environments that are comfort or where you feel relatively at ease or relatively comfortable. Uh, for a lot of us, work is not exactly a comfortable place, uh, a lot of stress, but think about environments, perhaps at home, where you have neighbors around you who, um, to whom you, you reach and make friends with. All of us have opportunities. 
You know, I'm, I'm, I was, as I was preparing, I was thinking about Heather Lee Walker and her Yarn Yenta uh, website. If you've been around here with us forever, you'll know Sam and Heather Walker who have moved on to California. Uh, they've begun a congregation called Har Yeshua, the Mountain of Yeshua. And uh, Heather Lee's always had artistic inclination and also was a knitter. And so she put the two of them together and uh, began to reach out and, and to pursue this. Um, she also has six kids. Um, and so she started going to all the um, uh, regional and then the national knitting conventions. And um, she came up with her designs and part of her approach to, to this whole area was of course to talk about Yeshua. And as she would go, people would, would love her, would love her designs and get to hear about who Yeshua is. And you can check out her website, Yarnienta. Uh, but it's simply a picture that you don't need to think that if you commit yourself to the Lord to speak His word, to be available to communicate the good news of Yeshua, that He's going to send you to Africa or to China or someplace else. It always begins with where you are. Where you are. What, what is home for you? Um, to embarrass uh, Linda Zims, she has... She participates in a book club in which there are a number of women who are not believers, who are not followers of Yeshua. Part of it is a desire to get out and to be part of the culture instead of being part of a ghetto. You know, what often happens, I, I listen to folks who talk about their life and how that in every single situation, somehow God has managed to bring a believer into their life a believing chiropractor, a believing doctor, a believing dentist, uh, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is fine. However, at what point do you go out and are a tool or a vehicle for the good news of Yeshua to get out if everybody you hang around with are fellow believers? How will they know? You find a place of comfort a place that you're relatively familiar with, and that's where you begin. Whether it's something like the synagogue or the marketplace, there are all sorts of ways, you know. And and today we, we of course, have the website and, and Facebook and so on. Those can all be opportunities for you to convey Yeshua to people. And so he's talking to people, and... Some of them don't get it. I, mean, I would say most of them don't get it. They think that he's talking about uh, some other gods, which is kind of bizarre in a place like Athens where you have a zillion gods to begin with. And possibly what's going on is he's talking about Yeshua, that's one god, and he's talking about the resurrection, which in Greek is anastasis, which is feminine. So maybe he's talking about this, this other god called anastasis. And so perhaps a couple of different gods. And besides the rank and file, you have the uh, philosophers, and Athens was famous for philosophers. You have philosophers just kind of roaming around. You had both the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans, there are lots of things um, about their worldview, but I'll just mention one basic thing. They believed that um, all of life basically uh, happens by a series of accidents. You know, one atom bangs into another atom and somehow things happen. You ever hear people talk that way today? Life is merely a series of accidents. Um, and then the Stoics talked about how that, yes, there is a supreme God, but that he is everywhere. 
You know, he is in the chairs, he's in a carpet, he's in the mountains, he's in the flowers, he's in you, he's in me, etc., etc. Again, you've heard people talking about spiritual reality very much like that. And again, Paul talks to them about Yeshua and uh, the resurrection, and they don't get it. They see that this is something new, and um, they want to f bring him to a place where they can really listen more fully. Because, you know, in the marketplace, in the Agora, you have all kinds of noise. People are yelling, uh, uh, two drachmas today for a pair of shoes, come get it, you know, th that sort of thing. So they haul him to a place called the Areopagus which uh, people have often referred to as Mars Hill. It was literally the uh, Mars in, in Latin and Eris in, in Greek uh, was the god of war. And uh, their Areopagus used to be the governing body. It was up on top of a hill, and uh, that's where democracy took place. Well, at this point, that isn't the case, so instead, the Council of the Areopagus was basically entrusted with how do we sift everything that's coming to us. You know, the, there's, there's all kinds of uh, teachers and, and philosophers coming. How do, we, how do we sift what's going on? And so that's where you would come, is the Areopagus. Now what you have to understand here is that in the marketplace you had the rank and file type folks, the common people who <laughs> who believed in, in, uh, in all these gods. But when you came to the Areopagus, you had the philosophers who had put those things aside and were above that. You were looking at the educated upper class of Athens. And um, that's where they bring Paul. Now what Luke tells us is that some of them are not being very nice to Paul. Um, they refer to him as a babbler. Now the Greek word for babbler here literally means uh, a bird that comes and takes food from somebody else and then uses it. And so the figurative impression is that they're saying that Paul is a dilettante. He will take a little bit from here, a little bit from there and kind of mix it up in the goulash and really doesn't know what he's talking about. Sort of like an airhead. Um, if I was in Paul's shoes, I would get pretty huffy. I don't think any of us like to be insulted. And uh, yet what you find Paul doing here is offering a very respectful message. He doesn't get up and say, you generation of vipers, you know, you're worshiping idols, God is going to judge you and zap you and you're going to be history, which he could have done, but he, be he begins with a point of commonality. He looks to establish a common ground with these folks. And this is something for us to really grab a hold of because oftentimes, we're used to thinking like believers, talking like believers. We talk believer ease, and, and we've forgotten how to speak in common language to common folks about common issues in life. And what you see Paul here doing is looking to establish some kind of a common ground with these folks. I observe that you're very religious, and by the way, that word can either be religious or superstitious. If you have the King James, it, it, it translates it as superstitious. Here, it just means you're very religious. You're into religion. Um, verse 23 of uh, chapter 17, while I was passing through and examining the object of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And by the way, what Paul is saying here, I didn't just have a little glimpse 
of who you are and what you're about. I went around from place to place looking at all the statues and altars that you have uh, and thinking about it. Now again, I don't know if you or I would do that. I think after two or three statues of Hermes, I would probably say, okay, I've had enough. Um, I think part of the picture here is, at least my sense, is perhaps Paul is looking at these things and then saying, Lord, uh, praying, Lord, what on earth can we do in this idol-worshiping place? And, and the Lord obviously makes, opens the door for him to come to the Areopagus. And um, he, Paul found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now, again, think about it. Why would the Athenians want to have an altar to an unknown God? Well, duh, they wanted to cover all bases. Uh, apparently what had happened uh, several hundred years earlier is that there was a, a plague and the uh, Athenians and the Greeks tried every single possible uh, snake oil remedy and uh, prayed, etc. Nothing happened and uh, they got some kind of an oracle, some kind of a prophecy saying... You send out a flock of sheep, and where they sit down, that's where you're going to put an altar to this unknown God. Just in case there is an unknown God who got mad at you, and you want to make sure you cover all bases. And apparently, there are a number of these altars in different Greek cities. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they really believed that their idols were worthless, and that there was a supreme God who was above them? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think their spiritual understanding was, was quite, quite that, that far along. And Paul basically says to them, look, you guys have some smidge of an understanding that there is a God that you don't know. And let me tell you about the God that I represent that you guys don't know. And by the way, this God that I represent is a creator. And here he would probably speak to the Epicureans. This world didn't come about through some kind of atoms banging together, Big Bang Theory, and, and life coming out of the primordial ooze, etc., like evolution uh, proposes today. But God created the world and made all things in it. And oh, by the way, he really doesn't need to live in those magnificent temples that you established for him. Why? Because he made us, and he really doesn't need our services. And furthermore... He is the one who has given life to all of us, to me as a Jew, to you guys as Greeks, for us to live on, the, on this earth. And he has determined the times and the seasons, how things go from fall to winter to spring to summer. That's the kind of God I'm talking about. And he did that so that perhaps... When people look at, at the stars, when people look at the mountains, when people look at nature, they would get the fact that there must be a, a God greater than this who made all these things come about. And that perhaps people would kind of grope in the darkness like blind folks and perhaps come to a point where they somehow met God and because God wants to reveal himself to them. He's not very far from us. And here is the, the kicker. Paul quotes from a couple of Greek poets. 
It's possible he's quoting from three of them, but one of them, one of them is the statement, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. Not positive on that, but that's probably, probably comes from a poet from Crete. And um, the second quote is, <clears throat> for we also are his children. Now, where did this come from? It came from Greek mythology, folks. There were a couple of poets. One of them wrote a poem called A Hymn to Zeus. And that's where that statement came from. Did you know that? Outrageous, isn't it? Well, is Paul saying that your belief system in Zeus is wonderful and and you should go on believing in Zeus and so on and so forth. No, he's not saying that. He, he is plucking out these comments and saying, look, um, you guys have a basic clue that God is greater than you. He is greater than what you're able to do skillfully. And by the way, here, Paul could have slammed them for their idol worship, which is, by the way, what you find in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Uh, if, if you want to find heavy sarcasm in Scripture, uh, take some time to read Isaiah and Jeremiah and the passages where they talk about uh, how stupid idol worship is. Particularly Isaiah says, look, you go to the forest, you chop down a tree, half of it you use to build a fire and cook food to keep you warm. The other half, you, you make a, um, a statue and you bow down and you say, Oh my God, would you please save me? Paul doesn't do that because with the prophets, people had heard the message of God over and over and over again. They needed to, had, to have it um, in the face. But Paul here is coming, sort of just beginning to introduce who God is to these folks. And so he is a lot more gentle in how he pursues the message But he doesn't just, you know, this is not about feeling good. This is not about how uh, let's get together and, and, and all of us uh, coexist. I don't know if you've seen the bumper stickers that say coexist. And the short ver my response to that is yes and no. We obviously have to coexist on this planet. But no, I don't want to coexist with your... Um, false ideas of who God is. I'm not going to embrace it as, as just another possible right alternative. Um, and that's, that's where Paul goes. He says, in essence, look, God has put up with, with the foolishness of idol worship, but a time is coming when he is going to say, enough is enough. I'm going to have judgment here. And this is where things get kind of heavy for, for the listeners, for Paul. Judgment is coming because God wants everybody, everybody, to change and repent. And by the way, the Hebrew word for repent, shuv, means a 180-degree turn, turnabout, physically and spiritually. He wants people to turn and repent. He's fixed the day of judgment. And proof positive of that is the, the resurrection, of course. Now, how on earth do you make a connection with what Paul is saying? You know, the truth is, I don't know if you realize it, we live in Athens, do you realize that? I mean, we don't have the Acropolis and, and we don't have uh, the Parthenon and, and a statue to, um, to Athena. But we have all kinds of other indicators that A, we have idol worship going on here and B, we have lots of Epicurean and Stoics among us. You know, when you drive on C-470 heading towards the mountains, you see the statue, the golden statue of the angel Moroni. 
you go in other, other places, you see um, other things that remind you of idol worship. You know, I was reading a story to my son, my grandson rather, a nice children's story, kind of funny, we a little quirky. I kept on talking about how that people worship Buddha. And I thought, this is a story for a nine-year-old. Um, and really, we are in, in an environment, in a culture that is very much like Athens, that, that basically sees God and spiritual things as something absolutely nebulous, um, something that can be defined by anybody, anytime, anywhere, however he or she desires to define God. There's no, there's no understanding that our knowledge of God comes to us as, as God reveals himself. And God has revealed himself to us through, through nature, through our conscience, and through scripture, through the word of God. And the Lord calls on us to proclaim that kind of a message to people. And unfortunately, a lot of times, the folks who are not followers of Yeshua come away with a horrible impression of believers because they see us who follow Yeshua as narrow-minded bigots who are incapable of thinking beyond the box, who are incapable of interacting with them and understanding who they are and relating to them and making common, making uh, places of commonality. And this is something we have felt God wanting us to do as a congregation, as a mishpacha over the last several years because previously we had taken the approach of using uh, good news grenades into the Jewish community. We'd send out messages, uh, and but we would be safe behind the wall. Um, and there is something to be said about sending out literature to people or getting having a website that describes who we are or Facebook. Um, there's a lot of value in that. However, at some point, we began to realize that God wants us to do what Paul is doing here, and that is engage with people. Person to person. And uh, I, I believe what Paul is doing here is speaking the word of God tenderly. Not with a two by four and, and great deal of anger. He is, he is being very kind to these Athenians and simply telling them about the God he knows. And that's what the Lord wants for us to do, is to share who God is in our life to people who may or may not know him. And look for opportunities. And be available for God to take us and lead us and open doors and, and stretch us. And of course, here at this point, when Paul begins to speak about the resurrection of the dead, that's when a bunch of them just lose it. The Greeks really didn't understand physical resurrection. You know, for them, the soul was immortal. Okay, we, we got that. The soul is never going to die. But the body really makes no difference. You know, it's just a bunch of atoms, molecules, tissues, and so on. Uh, what really lives is the mind and intellect and the soul or the spirit. The body really is kind of irrelevant. So that played out in a couple of different ways. One were the folks that basically said, well, you can do whatever you want to with your body. So you find that in 1 Corinthians 5, where you have this guy who is committing incest, He's living with his uh, stepmother, and the Corinthian believers thought it was absolutely wonderful. In fact, that was 
indicating how spiritual they were that they were able to rise above these silly concerns of what, what do you do with the body. And Paul says to them, wake up and smell the coffee. You also had the same kind of problem with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 because they didn't get the need for a physical resurrection of Yeshua. So on one hand, the Greeks thought that it didn't matter what you did with the body since it was irrelevant. On the other hand, you had the ascetics who said, since the body is really worthless, the mind is the thing that matters. You really have to kind of put a chastity girdle on it and, and, and treat it severely. Both, both of these are extremes that have sometimes found their way into, into the body of Messiah, none of which really line up with the word of God. So Paul here is talking about the resurrection. The, some of them begin to sneer, again, because they thought it was ridiculous. Others said, we'd like to hear. And apparently you have Dionysus, who was the Areopagite. In other words, he was a member of the council and a woman named Amaris. So of course people look at that, the critics. You know, everybody likes to be a critic. You know, throw stones. People look at, at this episode and they say, see, Paul went to all the lengths to try and make commonality with these people. And what happened? Pfft, not a whole lot happened here. You don't have a congregation established. Paul doesn't stay here. God doesn't do awesome things. Instead, he scoots over to, to Corinth. What we forget is that Paul is not a free agent. That somehow in the process, he wants to be, above all things, responsive to the leading of the Spirit of God, going where God wants him to go. And apparently part of the plan was for him to do what he just did and then move on to Corinth. But the other piece is here you have Dionysus and Damaris and a few others who as far as God is concerned are very precious. Remember that what, scriptures, what Yeshua said is that the angels do backflips when anyone comes into the kingdom of God. Because God does not want anyone to perish but all to come into repentance and to know him. So the short time that Paul was there, you had these people who came into the kingdom, but really more to it was the fact that he could have just vegged out here after having a hard time in Berea and Thessalonica. And instead, he is moved with compassion when he sees the blindness of the people around him. And he wants to share with them about, about the Lord he knows. He begins with something he is very familiar with, of course, the synagogue. Then he goes out into the marketplace. And then somehow God opens the door for him to talk to the influence makers. And that's a biggie. We, we lose sight of the fact that Paul at the Areopagus is speaking the word of God to influence makers. People who have authority in Athens to filter and sift spiritual uh, things that come into the city. Somehow God opened the door for him. And this is something that, that we have to, to realize as we are receptive to what God wants to do with us, he may take us out of our comfort zone and stretch us and bring us to a place that is beyond us where we are able to interact with people that we normally would not interact with so that we have the opportunity to tell them about who Yeshua is. But it's all about the fact that we are have the basic willingness to get the word of God out to people, to share with people about the Lord, to get beyond ourselves. This is what the prophet Isaiah stated so vividly, and I just want to close with that. 
go through, go through the gate. Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. I see in this a progression. Three basic items. First of all, you have to go out of the gate. That means leave the comfort zone where you're currently parked and be willing to go out to prepare, prepare the way for other people. Or to put it in, in a different, different metaphor, different picture. Get out of the harbor and go out into the sea. How else would you be able to fish? Go through, go through the gates. It's very, very uh, strong language when it, it is repeated, it's, it's an imperative, it's a command. Get out! Get out of your comfort zone. Clear the way for the people. In other words, make it possible for people to hear without all the usual baggage that we bring into it. Build up the highway. Remove the stones that hinder people from coming to know Yeshua. Lift up a standard. A standard is a flag that people are drawn to. Here, of course, he's referring not just to Israel Jews, but also to Gentiles. And this is something that I'm, I'm sensing that the Lord wants us to embrace as we come into the season of the Moadim, the holidays, that we, are, we become willing to go beyond ourselves as individuals and as a congregational mishpacha and say, okay, Lord, what does it look for us to get out and to be available and to speak? What does that look like? Where, what is the place that you can begin with us? The other picture that comes to mind is that God speaking to Moses. And at some point after the Lord loses his temper with, with Mo, and simply says to him, okay, what, what do you have available? Moses says, I have a staff. And God says, okay, we have something we can work with. Use it, throw it, becomes a snake, and so on and so forth. Each one of us has a staff. Each one of us has the means that God can use in us in how we can relate to other people. God is very creative. We may look at the world, the Athenian world around us and say, how on earth do I share Yeshua? How do I relate to people? How, what strategy do I come up with? And uh, and I believe God's answer to, to that is simply be available. Simply be available. Use what I have given you and then see what happens. Let's pray. And would you please stand? Lord God, we bless your name and we thank you, Lord, for challenging us. And Lord, we often hear your word and discount it because of life circumstances, because of how we feel at a particular moment. And uh, thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you come back again and again and again and you challenge us and you require us to listen. And Lord God, we do in fact want to listen. We do in fact want to follow. Lord God, thank you that you know 
all the folks around us, Lord, who need to hear about you through us. And Lord, it is an awesome task. It is beyond us. And yet, Lord, we don't want to shrink from it because of our insecurities and our fears and our issues. Lord God, we want to dedicate ourselves, Lord, to being vessels, mouthpieces for you, Lord, of yours in, in our Athenian culture. Lord God, to proclaim the, the one and true God that people grope around and really don't know. And Lord God, I pray for each one of us that you would speak to us. Lord God, go deep with us. Convict us of unbelief and unwillingness to follow. And Lord God, then give us the faith to trust you that as we make ourselves available that you would show us those particular steps, the areas in which we live, the areas, Lord, which can be a place of bridge building with other folks who need to hear your word. And Lord God, I pray for holy chutzpah to see your hand at work to be part of it, Lord. And we ask, Lord God, for the faith that we need to hear and to follow. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.